Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So James, another week has flown by. How's it been? Yeah, it feels like it's the first real week after the new year. Last week was a bit weird. Not many people were back in the office, so it was quite quiet. I don't know about you. I know you were busy. I was. I was I'm, I'm already, I'm new year weary. <laughs> you need another holiday. <laughs> yeah. When is it? It must be nearly holiday time. <laughs> must be, must be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So a bit of everything this week, uh, planning for Trinity Breffield Prize, doing some government reporting. Uh, the government put some money into the construction of the Bradfield Centre all those years ago. So we're still reporting back on our progress for that. Some event planning, lots of really cool tech meetups coming to the Bradfield. And uh, there might be an episode about that coming up soon. And last but not least, which is podcast related, the eagle-eyed amongst the audience may notice we're now offering transcripts of all of the uh, episodes as well. So if you want to download a complete transcript of every episode, go to our website. Oh, crikey. That's kind of a bit scary, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I have a plan. I'm going to do something with those in the future, but I'll keep that under my hat for now. Okay. All right. Well, I I think I won't be looking at those. (laughs) I'll I'll spend so long correcting what I say, but there you go. Too late. (laughs) How was your week? Yeah, so uh, starting with you, you started with Trinity Bradfield. I'll start with 21 to Watch. The deadline has closed. Um, so we're just prepping the shortlist, ready for the independent judges. And crikey, I'm so glad. Once again, it's independent judges doing it. Um, it's going to be another tough one. So good luck to you. It's, it's all going to be landing on your desk soon and you know who you are. I never say who they are in advance, just in case anyone goes and tries to nobble them. <laughs> So yeah, we've we've done that. Um, big big pieces of work going on actually on with with clients and big publications. So doing quite a lot with the Times and Bloomberg and other industry specific press out there. So it's definitely hotted up really quickly from a PR point of view, which is really good. And we've had some news on the business as well that I thought I could share. With that's all right. Oh, exciting! Yeah, go on then. Well, for the fourth year running, the Business Weekly have issued their New Year Honours list. And my business, Coofinitive, is top of the list again for image makers, which is super exciting. And we're all very proud and very honoured and happy about it. Lovely. That's really good news. Congratulations to all the team. Uh, you, You do amazing work. Should we crack on with the news for around Cambridge Tech this week? Yeah, let's let's do that. So headlining this week, we have an update from Forefront RF, the fabulous semiconductor startup. The company's patented tunable duplexer technology has been officially trademarked and registered, and I love this name, as Fortune. It's a breakthrough solution poised to redefine mobile radio in smartphones, smartwatches, and IoT systems. And the company is already in talks with several smartphone and smartwatch manufacturers. Yeah, that is a really good name, actually. Finally, a Cambridge startup with a catchy name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it. Next up, we have Cambridge entrepreneur, Professor Steve Young. Uh, for those who don't know, Steve was the chair of a Cambridge startup called Vocal IQ, who were acquired by Apple, and a lot of their technology is now behind Siri. 
Um, he's joined Amadeus Capital Partners as a venture partner. And uh, we've covered Amadeus a couple of times, actually, on the podcast. So you can go back and check out our interview with Herman Hauser, who we spoke to in episode 42, and Amelia Armour, who was in episode 37. Indeed. So next, we have two Cambridge companies that are among three. So two out of three innovators have been chosen to have their AI technology used in trials. And I'm kind of a bit eek about this one, helping p- improve people's experience of roadworks on England's motorways and A routes. And anyone listening will automatically be thinking of potholes, I'm sure. Anyway, the two companies are Alkira Technologies and RoboK, and they both receive up to £60,000 to take their ideas forward. So congratulations to both of those. Yeah. And finally, as part of their presence in Cambridge, software company Cladara has signed a new five-year deal to brand Cambridge United FC's Abbey Stadium. Uh, no figures have been disclosed, but the ground will now be called the Cladara Abbey Stadium. So that's all the Cambridge-based news, but it would be remiss of us on a tech podcast not to quickly hop across the pond for a quick update on one of the major flagship events of the year, which uh, I know you've been following, Faye. Indeed, I have. So uh, those of you that know over in Las Vegas this week has been the Consumer Electronics Show, CES. Over the years, it's it's kind of evolved and morphed um, as the years have gone on, and it now includes a really large amount of startups and scale-ups, as well as the obvious huge tech giants. And so it's really good, and quite a lot of our community do go there. I know Gary Brotman was over there from Second Mind, for example. Um, and there's loads of pitches that take place. But I thought it would be interesting if we just talk through what some of those top themes were. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So the the top of the list was generative AI, something we've talked about a lot. Again, looking at previous people on the podcast, I remember Beyond Math gave a great example and an explanation of all the different forms of AI. So it might be worthwhile going looking back at that as well. Um, And it was also Gen AI was one of the big predictions from Ben Stanton at Deloitte a couple of weeks ago. So that's the first one. Second was robotics. So I'm not talking about vacuum cleaners here, although it is a consumer electronics show. But what they're actually talking about was automated processes for some of the big companies. So it'll be interesting to see what what materializes from that. Um, The next one was automotive and EVs. And that's something that's been on the agenda at CES for number a number of years. And we've seen quite a lot of this. You remember we spoke to Morag of Spark EV on an earlier episode as well. That remains a really interesting space. And the final one was health tech, which fortuitously, as if we'd planned it, we're talking about a little bit next week with Pam Garside. So I think that's really interesting. And that's on everything, you know, any kind of tracking and testing from Parkinson's to glucose and and onwards. So I think it's a really great area for companies like Heartfelt Technologies, who we featured towards the end of last year in episode 62. So all in all, you know, we're, we're covering quite a few of those key topics that are appearing on the big shows like CES, which I think is really great. Well, we keep talking about road trips, so uh, Vegas next year, yeah? (laughs) Do you know what? I have never been to Vegas, so I've been to America. I couldn't even possibly tell you how many times, but I've never been to Vegas. I'm not sure if I should keep it that way. I don't know. I've just gone off on a tangent, haven't I? Should we carry on? (laughs) Okay, right. Moving on to today's episode, we're delighted to have Beck Simmons with us. (laughs) 
So welcome back to Cambridge Tech Podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi there, my name is Beck Simmons and I'm Chief Operating Officer at Riverlane, a quantum computing company in Cambridge. Perfect. So let's go back to the beginning and let's talk a little bit about your early career and where your journey has taken you so far. I actually started life as an epidemiologist, so someone who studies uh, disease patterns in time and space. Um, so I've been a scientist my whole life and I was particularly interested in diabetes prevention. But as time went on, uh, as much as I enjoyed the science, I also enjoyed the leadership and the management aspect of working with very clever people. So I did an MBA part-time uh, and jumped around a bit to different roles to gain more management experience. So I briefly worked as a chief of staff for the vice chancellor of the University of Cambridge. And then I also set up something called the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute within the auspices of the university. So kind of a startup within the university. So I should have said, are you from Cambridge? Is this, or, or did you come and do a degree in Cambridge? What what happened? Uh, I came here to do my PhD in 2004. And like many people, I never left. So <laughs> I stayed. <laughs> and we have another classic Cambridge pub story, I think, here, don't we, as well, in terms of how you then made the leap to River Lane. Yes. So I was working at Adam Brooks, the hospital in Cambridge, and uh, someone I worked with, his husband, ran a quantum computing startup. And she said, oh, will you meet my husband in the pub? He wants to talk to you about an operations role at his company. And I thought, well, this sounds a bit weird. What's quantum computing? I'd never heard of it. But I went along and he bought me a Diet Coke and a packet of cheese and onion crisps, which is what I like to have at the pub, and told me about his company and what quantum computing was. And it was, yeah, pretty earth-shattering for me that a technology might be able to do something like the things he claimed. And I just finished my MBA and the entrepreneurship module was the most interesting to me. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to jump. I'm going to leave the university and join this startup. And so three weeks later, after that pub meeting, there I was at River Lane. Wow, that was a real leap of faith then, wasn't it? Into mm. something very different for you. Yes. Yeah. And a real pivot from like health to deep tech and yes. quantum computer. How did how did you get your head around that? <laughs> I think the eventual end game of quantum, one of the applications uh, when it all works out, is human health. So you can design a drug from scratch or you will be able to in the future with a quantum computer. So the kind of end game there was there for me in terms of the fact that I've always been interested in improving human health. But in terms of the opportunity to set up a business, to join a startup, to work in some with some really interesting technology with very clever people and be a leader in that space, that I think was the motivation for me to jump. I mean, we have a lot of listeners that are researchers at Cambridge and, and other universities, and, and we cover a lot of the early stage university competitions like uh, the Chris Abel postdoc competition and the Trinity Bradfield Prize. So as an academic yourself that's made that kind of leap into the entrepreneurial world, what would be your advice to them if they're nurturing that kind of desire to go off and either start something or, or join an early stage company? First of all, I mean, you've mentioned a few things already. I would avail yourself of the Cambridge ecosystem because it's absolutely fantastic. And there's lots of opportunity to join networks, groups, go to talks and learn from other people who've been on the same journey. So you can gather as much data as possible to work out if it's the right move for you. So this is a wonderful place to set up a company. At the same time, I think you need to be realistic about what it will involve. So it'll take, be a huge amount of risk, an awful lot of change, very little sleep. Um, the ability to roll with the punches and you'll be massively outside your comfort zone for a few years while you get things established. So it's definitely not for the lighthearted. Not that I'm trying to put people off, but mm. there's no getting away from the fact that it's, it is long hours. It's difficult and changing work. So I'd also make sure you've got your support network personal support network around you as well if you can mm. and it's a really different discipline isn't it um you know we talk to a lot of startups and it will be one will be the business one will be more academic 
But actually, I think the fact that you'll have done both sides of it has got to be beneficial for you as well, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I think I marry the two quite well now. I've gained a lot of experience on the ground at Revelone, though, while I've been there. Yeah. So so let's talk about the COO role. I think you're probably our first COO mm-hmm. that we've had right. on the podcast. So what does that role entail? It's a very varied role and no day looks the same. So I think most COOs will look after things like HR, finance, legal, governance, IT, intellectual property. So they'll hold the ring on all of those things, but they might have a strength in a couple of them, for example. So it's about holding the ring. But I will say I've been at Riverlane now four and a half years. What I did in the first year as a COO is very different to what I do now as a COO as the company has grown. In what way? I think at the beginning, well, I know at the beginning, I was doing all the doing. So you're buying the milk, you're hiring, I don't know, uh, someone to build a website for you, you're hiring a lawyer, you're interviewing lots of people, you're writing job descriptions, you're getting your hands really, really dirty, and you're doing the job of all those people. I joined when I was employee number nine. Now we're nearly 100 strong. And so I don't do those things anymore. I've got a head of people, I've got a head of finance, I've got a head of legal, and they do the doing, as it were. So I'm now much more of the glue and I hold it all together. I know enough about all those things to hold them together. But, you know, thank goodness I've now got the experts in place to do those function-specific jobs. And how's that growth been, you know, from nine to over 100? You know, that because that's only in a few years. So mm. it really is. And we'll talk a little bit more about Rivlane as well. But, you know, that really is exponential growth to yes. be to be one of the leadership team in. Yes. It's been the most joyous time of my life, uh, perhaps also the most challenging time to, to grow a company at that speed and that scale. And it all comes down to people, as per usual, when you run a business or any organisation, how to retain them, motivate them, keep them going, inspire them. At the same time, sometimes let a few of them go. How do you do that? And build a culture alongside that. That's really tough. I think internal communication, just saying the same thing again and again and talking about your strategy, which will change, is very, very important. It's so true that you need to spend as much time talking to your employees as you do to media and, you know, everyone else externally. So what's your approach there? I mean, there's that classic politician repeat the same thing seven times until people actually latch on to something. How do you approach that? Exactly. as that actually saying the same thing again and again. But it's hard to remember, actually, because when you're moving at speed and you're growing so fast, particularly in the leadership team, you don't always do that well. That's something we haven't done well in the past and I think we have got better at, but you constantly have to remind yourself to do it. Because invariably every month, there's always a couple of new starters who haven't got the history of what's happened already and knows what's happening. And also your strategy's changing <laughs> almost yeah. month to month, unfortunately, in this world. And also the messaging about what you do changes. So We use team meetings, you know, every other week to talk about that message. I go back and forth to the different offices we've got around the world to repeat that message. And now, you know, whenever we make any major decisions, the first thing we say is, okay, how are we going to communicate this? Who is going to communicate this? When and and like that, so that we make sure it becomes a habit. Mm. You talked about going to different offices around the world. And at the end of last year, an opportunity came up for you to actually move. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how that opportunity came about and what it's been like? Mm. So we've got, obviously, our central headquarters are in Cambridge in the UK. We've also got offices in Boston and San Francisco in the States. But the quantum ecosystem is actually growing in terms of the opportunities in Europe, as well as you might imagine. Lots of governments have now got their own national quantum strategies. And in fact, Denmark is kind of ahead of the game in Europe, perhaps alongside Germany. They've just released a national quantum strategy. Novo Nordisk, the big pharmaceutical company there, has ploughed a lot of money into quantum. And it was clear it would be useful to have someone on the ground there that might be able to create some business development opportunities, but also look ahead to potential building recruitment pipeline. 
and perhaps unusually for a COO, although I like and can run the internal stuff very well, I'm quite external facing for a COO. So I'm an extrovert by nature. I like getting out and about and meeting people. I don't want to be stuck in an office all day. And I had previously lived in Denmark as a visiting professor a few years ago in my old life. So I volunteered to go. So I moved there last November. So I live in Copenhagen and I'm just on the ground every day, meeting the ecosystem, trying to build opportunities. And also if if we win a grant there, which we're hoping to, then I will build and, and recruit a team here as well. That is so exciting. But is it just a tad? I know you've got some legacy of being there, but is it a little bit daunting as well? Um, I don't find it daunting professionally. I think it's a good use of my skill set and my personality. Personally, it's tough just being really frank. You know, you're leaving all your friends and your hobbies and your life back at home, but it's only a short hop away and I go back and forth a lot to see my team. And I think once I've recruited a team here and set them up, then I'll, I'll come back to the UK, but maybe do it somewhere else like Australia. <laughs> An <laughs> adventurer. <laughs> yeah, where it's sunny, yeah. And you're still performing the COO role alongside mm, that Yes, as well. I'm trying okay. to. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's... But I've got a wonderful team in place, so they are yeah. kind of running the show. But yeah, it is. It, you're slightly torn between two lives and two countries and two jobs. So that, yeah, it has taken a, a minor toll. Another topic I'd like to touch on is something that, you know, we're both women who have worked in the tech industry. You know, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that it's, we have a responsibility to keep talking about women in tech or is it, you know, our experiences, it's kind of normal. What What's your experience been? I think my experience is mixed. So Obviously, you and I can look around and still see that there's not enough women in tech. That's particularly the case in my field right, of deep tech. And what we've done is inherit a problem in terms of women, you know, taking science A-levels and doing mass chemistry, physics or engineering at university. And that plays out in terms of the type of people we can recruit. So we're running about 30% women in River Lane, which is unusually high. I think most tech firms are running more about 20%. But obviously, I'd like that to be higher to represent the population. That does become discouraging after a while. And I often say the side kind of industries I work in as well, like when we pitch to investors, I most often pitch to men. So that can become discouraging and a bit depressing. On the flip side, I would say after four years at River Lane, this is the most open and inclusive environment I've ever worked in. And there's tons of opportunities and problems to solve. And we need people from all different types of background. So I would say to women, come on in. Let's just crack on and get these problems solved. These spaces are dynamic. They're moving. They're inclusive. They're open. So I actually think it's a wonderful place for women to shine. So I'd encourage more of them to come in. When we were chatting, when we were like prepping for this conversation, you you made a point of talking about class, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And I can't maybe empathise on the female entrepreneur side of things, but I can on the class side of things. So Mm. I'd love to get your perspective on that because you were quite passionate about that when we were chatting. Yeah, I'd say I'm perhaps more passionate about the class issue than the Mm. gender issue, which might be a little unusual. So I come from a working class background in Brighton. My dad worked in a factory. My mum was a playgroup assistant when I was younger. And I went to a, you know, bog standard state school, didn't send many people to university. And that has had an impact on how I live my life and the values I've got, actually. So not only the kind of very hard work ethic, putting the hours in, but also not taking anything for granted. My dad was often under threat of redundancy and that slightly overhung our childhood a little bit. So not taking anything for granted is a great skill to have in a startup because you can't take anything for granted. But also it gives me ability, I think, to talk to people from different backgrounds to make everyone... I know my accent doesn't sound like it probably did when I grew up in Brighton off into too many posh universities. <laughs> I worked hard to get there, right? And I tried. So I think I have had this kind of... Uh, my, I've got a management coach and she would say a kind of working class chip on my shoulder for a while where like, <laughs> I always bring up to kind of excuse something. But actually, I think I've moved beyond that now and see it almost as a superpower. Mm. And I do have that kind of 
warmth and ability to interact with people from lots of different backgrounds, which makes my job much easier to be able to do that, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I just thought it's noteworthy because it's nothing that ever seems to be talked about, especially in tech. It no, never, I know. never comes up as a subject. No. It's weird, really. Cause... It is, but in some ways that might be good because it is it kind of equalising in some ways tech that, you know, British people, you can kind of guess what class they're in. Automatically, yeah. You do it subconsciously. Yeah. Actually, now you said that, I don't know if I'd do it in tech. No. I know if they're a VC, right, because of what they're wearing, but... <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, it, it, maybe it isn't such a big issue in tech, actually. But for me, in terms of informing the values and the way I want to work and the risks I will and won't take, I think it's been actually very important for me. I mean, you've had a really successful academic career, so I guess you've excelled in everything you've ever done. But that working class chip on the shoulder thing, where that comes in for me is that imposter syndrome thing, mm. where sometimes you find yourself in a situation you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. Yes, I certainly had that when I was younger, particularly when I went to Oxford, which, of course, you know, people from my school just didn't go there. Yeah. And so you did look around thinking all these well-spoken people and the confidence they had, which I certainly didn't have when I started. But that has grown over time. I can honestly say now, I think it's important to say, particularly for women, I don't have imposter syndrome anymore. Hmm. I think I got the A-level, someone external marked them. I got the degrees, so that's objective proof that I must be quite clever and can work hard. I've never been sacked from a job. I keep getting bigger and better jobs. Maybe the fact that I'm even having to say that because I've still got a little bit of imposter syndrome. But it's that English working class thing about don't brag, don't blow your own trumpet, (laughs) be humble. Yeah, Yeah. but I, I'm still very cognizant that um, more junior members of staff, particularly women that I work with, still do have that, and that's something I think the fact that I now inhabit myself and my skills very comfortably, I can help coach others through and see that you can move beyond that, and it doesn't have to be a thing always because it's certainly not for me anymore. Interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's the (laughs) first time we've talked about that. High-performance computing and AI is being used to positively transform society and the environment, from powering applications that support vaccine research to accelerating our response to climate change. KO Data develop and operate sustainable and energy-efficient data centres for advanced computing. Our scalable, state-of-the-art architecture supports the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech and AI startups in Cambridge. To find out how we can reduce your digital carbon footprint, get in touch at kodata.com slash contact. KO Data, proud to sponsor the Cambridge Tech Podcast. Let's move on to um, Quantum and River Lane. You know, Quantum's featured regularly on the podcast and Faye and I always use these conversations as a learning opportunity, yeah. don't we? And you've promised me that you can explain quantum in ways that we'll be able to understand. So why don't we start off with the quantum opportunity and, and you know, what you see ahead of us? Yeah. So you don't want me to explain what a quantum computer is. You know that, you're fine. Mm. I would go back. I would I would go for listeners' benefit. I would go through everything. That's our caveat, right? This is yeah, for yeah. listeners. This yeah, yeah, not it's not for us. No, right, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so a quantum computer is a special type of computer that can operate at a speed and complexity for certain problems that classical computers or the laptops we sit at just couldn't do. And in particular, normal computers, as I will call them, store and process information using things called bits. So they store information as zeros or ones. And quantum computers store them as qubits. So they store information as zero or one or zero and one at the same time. And that I find still a bit freaky in my mind. So if you imagine me flipping a coin, it can land as heads or tails, so zero or one. But if I flip it in a quantum computing sense, it can be heads or tails or heads and tails at the same time. And it's this at the same timeness that gives quantum computers this amazing ability to simultaneously solve complex problems 
that will mean that they'll be far more powerful than the computers that you and I use now. So that's what a quantum computer is, mm. what it can do in the future. I mean, it'll probably have the biggest impact on industries like pharmaceutical industry, chemistry, automotive and finance. And if I focus in on pharmaceutical, because I did a few drug trials when I was an epidemiologist, the thing that I find most, this is the thing that got me in the pub actually with the CEO of Riverlane is at the moment when you do drug discovery design, I'm, I'm sure you've had people on talking about that as well. You know, it can take 10 years, cost mm. a billion pounds. And you're just picking needles out of a haystack, testing different compounds to see if they could be developed or made into a drug. But with quantum computing, given the properties of the quantum computer, its quantum mechanical properties and the power it's got, you could actually design the drug from scratch to fit into the molecule in the body and simulate that all without having to do this needle in a haystack approach. So the fact that you could design something from scratch and make it work in a body is just mind-blowing to me. That's some time away. But that's the eventual end game, at least in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. And it's also such a complicated industry because you've got people that are doing the software, the platforms, the hardware. You know, what does that landscape overall look like? I think very simply, if you think of the quantum computer stack going from the bottom to the top, so you've got the hardware at the bottom, so the bits in a classical computer and the qubits in a quantum computer, then you go up to the middleware, the software, I'll call it, and that's the bit we do, which I can come back to. And then the top, you've got the applications and the end users. So that might be the chemical companies or the pharmaceutical companies, and they will want to run their models or analyses or shots, as we call them, down through the quantum computer to the bottom, but they'll have to run through software, get some things sorted out on the way down before they get result up from the bottom of the stack, as it were. So tell us a little bit about Riverlane then. <laughs> so we work in the middle bit of the stack yep. and we're building the quantum error correction stack. So every time you run a shutdown from the top, the quantum computer has to run a number of operations, but it creates a load of noise, the qubits at the bottom, when it does this. And so very quickly nowadays, the quantum computer just grinds to a halt. So you've got to correct those errors as they're going down to the bottom. And we have built the bit of software that does that in the centre of the stack. And we've actually put that bit of software on a chip as well, which is rather novel because we have now the world's first quantum error correction chip. Did you design the chip as well? Yes. Okay, so you've done the whole piece. Yes. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, you mentioned there right now that there's that need for the error correction. How far away are we talking then for when this might actually come through to market? I'm intrigued what your other quantum guests have said. I mean, (laughs) most people say in our world, at least, that it's probably about 10 years away to get to a useful quantum computer that can actually run something that's commercially viable. So a, a computation that's useful to some of these industries. That's that's what most people say. Mm. I think it's always tricky because there's a lot of hype in quantum and we're very cognizant of that and try not to flame it. But of course, there's some very exciting things at the end of the tunnel. And I think like it's many things in tech, we probably overestimate what we can do in the short term, but we very much underestimate what we could do in the long term with quantum technology. I just don't think we even thought of the things it could solve yet or the problems it could uh, tackle. Yeah, I mean, it's quite unusual, isn't it, for a new technology, a nascent technology to be so hyped so early in its cycle, I guess. Mm. If we're still a decade away, maybe, it must be quite challenging to evangelise and to raise money for something that's so future-based. Yes. I think it's because of the defence and security implications the technology might have that there's Mm. been perhaps so much hype because it could crash the financial markets. I think that's perhaps why it's got more attention than other technologies this early on. But in terms of fundraising, it does make it challenging because, you know, there's not big commercial money changing hands yet, being very frank with you in Mm. this industry. What money is changing hands is governments. So government is the first customer, a bit like high performance computing was a couple of decades ago. So that's where the money is coming from at the moment. But in terms of like pure direct venture capital investment, you need very patient investors for this kind of field. 
because you're not getting a return on your investment for 10 years. So you've got to be pretty darn patient. And I guess working with government alone requires quite a unique skill set within the company because, yeah. you know, a typical VC-backed company will probably go last to government as a customer because they're the speed of, yeah, absolutely. you know, so it's, it's almost flipping the model, isn't yeah. it? So what does that look like on a day-to-day basis, kind of working alongside government and working at their speed? That's a really interesting question, actually, because and it's very current for us because we are working with quite a few governments and it involves building relationships actually with ministers and with with folk, almost a bit of lobbying in some senses mm. um, to build those relationships. And of course, because it's such a deep technology and difficult to understand, there's also an education piece at the same time. Mm. So politicians know that it's going to be important. Maybe they don't quite understand the tech and they don't know where to place their bet. So helping shape what they do is part of what we're doing at Riverlane, which Again, if you told me four years ago that was the kind of thing you'd be doing in a startup, mm. working that intimately with government ministers, I would have been shocked. But it's also extremely interesting. Mm. But the slow moving part is challenging. Working with all governments in procurement is very challenging. So, I mean, I'd love to use this podcast as a way to investors to say, <laughs> <laughs> just take your time with the deep tech folk a little bit because um, we are dealing with some very challenging customers. I think it's interesting as well with going back to the government and how they fund you know, there's been a lot of backlash about how slow they've been in the semiconductor market. I mean, specifically about the UK here. Mm. Whereas quantum, as you've just said, there are so many governments literally around the world yes. that are starting to invest in this. Absolutely. And for once, actually, the UK is well ahead of the game. So we've had a national quantum strategy for over a decade now. The government's put a billion pounds in the last decade. In the next chunk of funding, it's going to be two and a half billion. So they're very serious about it. And yeah, for a relatively small political power now, we are, I would say, ahead of the game. Of course, we don't have the deep pockets like China and like the USA. But I think in terms of what we could achieve, the market is still wide open. So I still think we could have a very, very big impact. And Cambridge, of course, is an amazing place to do that from because we have had global impact with technology before, like ARM, like chips. So why can't we do the same again? I think the government needs to double down on the things we're good at in the UK and play to those strengths in quantum rather than trying to win everything because we just can't with our purse strings. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Riverlane again, if we can. You know, they're a really hot startup company that is scaling very fast in a very dynamic marketplace. But it feels like you're still very rooted in Cambridge. I know we've worked many times with Steve, really, Mm -hmm. on the Impulse program because he wants to be sharing knowledge and expertise. I think you've just personally started at the Founders at the University of Cambridge as well. Your commitment to Cambridge, is it really important to you moving forward? Yes, absolutely. I should say I love the pressure of it. Like I like the fact that that's how Riverlane is perceived. I think it's brilliant. And we've worked really hard and done loads of amazing things to get to this position. So I'm not made nervous by that. I think great. I do like to give back. I think, you know, there's a lot of academics, obviously, in Cambridge who are making companies. And when I made the jump, it was a very steep learning curve. And one of the first things I did was go out and speak to all the other companies that my local investors had invested in to learn from them. So I built a network just personally myself. And of course, the university, Cambridge Enterprise, this new founders program, there's even more kind of off the shelf stuff now you can jump into to get the experience. So in that sense, I think it's an amazing place to start a potentially world changing business with all the innovation and and fantastic things that are happening here. So, yeah, for me, I want to give back because I know how hard those first few years were. So if I can mentor someone or teach them something that gets them there quicker with less sleepless nights, I would love to do that. Yeah. And it must help for recruitment as well and, you know, just positive brand awareness, mustn't it? Yes. Yeah. 
And I mean, you touched on company culture. I'm guessing it's a very engineering and scientific heavy company. Yes. So what does the culture look like? And are you trying to create that sense of, you know, a high velocity startup, the excitement that comes with that against that backdrop of like some serious heavy engineering work? You know, how do you balance all of those things and create a culture that's going to attract the top talent from around both the UK and internationally? I think it's understanding how engineers and scientists work and then creating an environment, both physical and mental, that can help them shine. So that, having previously been a scientist, helps in that sense. So this kind of tech bro, I don't know, pool table, culture, yeah. it just it's not going to fly. Yeah. <laughs> We're far too nice and kind and uh, fairly serious in some ways, actually, at Riverlane. <laughs> so that was never going to work. Yeah. But I think giving people or giving scientists a difficult problem to solve and then letting them get on with it with a few constraints around the edges is the way to encourage these people to do their absolute best. So flexible working hours, wonderful office environment where there's lots of space and whiteboards to do problems together, a very deep snack jar, very deep, <laughs> is very important. And freedom, I think, but with the support there. And I think we've done really well at that, actually. Obviously, Steve started the company, his early hires, that does set the scene for the culture. It does iterate over time. And we've tried to, yeah pay that forward. So the, the kind of kindness, the openness, the supportiveness, we're collaborative, that we've managed to, to make that continue. I should note at the same time, so our team is very diverse. So we have a lot of neurodiversity, as you might imagine, with some of the yep. academic disciplines. We have quite a lot of dyslexia, interestingly, mm -hmm. and how you can help support those people to shine in our environment is something I think a lot about as someone who's um, normally in charge of people. So we have learned some lessons along the way, but a lot of us are ex-academic. So we're kind of that nice halfway house between being a massive commercial company making billions, do you know what I mean, and academia. And so we've landed somewhere in the middle and I think it works really nicely. And also I should say, as we've got more money, we've hired more ex-commercial people. So we've got people from Arm working for us now. We've got people from Microsoft Research up the road. So they have brought their own culture in and expertise about working in a slightly different environment where delivery might be more important than it is in the academic environment. So making those two worlds meld together has been an interesting journey. Mm. Which can also get you on the road to scale yes. as well. You know, that's a, that's a vital thing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. We started to touch on some of the special qualities of Cambridge. I mean, you've been in Cambridge for a long time. You know, what, what is your perspective on Cambridge's cluster and its growth potential you know, over the coming years? I think it's the best place in the world to do a startup. I do. I think you've got... There's the headline. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you've got everything you need here to do it. You've got a world-class university, you know, pumping out amazing graduates in lots of different sciences. You've got all the support networks you just mentioned from different parts of the ecosystem. Just more boring stuff, but it's very practical to me. London is 45 minutes away and I'm still there every week meeting people when I'm not in Denmark. Um, Stansted's really close. You can, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a really nice and easy place to live. You can cycle around to all your meetings in Cambridge and you've got class talent just in the city and you've got examples like Arm of being able to scale globally from this place. And the reputation of Cambridge University as a brand in itself, of course, is global. So for me, there's no better place. Once I go back home, I, you know, I will be staying in Cambridge, so... And the other thing I like about Rivlane is it's not just about Cambridge. You're very, you know, you work with lots of universities all over the place, the UK and beyond. So mm. I think that's really positive too. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Although we are Cambridge Centre, we've obviously got a global outlook. The market is global, but I think it's a good base to go from. And you mentioned ARM there and, and the fact that you've got the, the on-chip um, error correction. So have they been 
a reference for the kind of business model that you guys are like following now with that kind of IP licensing? Yeah, model? it's certainly something we're looking at. I think yeah. the business model for Quantum isn't quite yet defined. I'm yeah. not quite sure how it's going to play out, but it's um, we're learning a lot from Arm. So Jamie Urquhart was the mentor of Steve Briley, our CEO. Of course, we have lots of connection. Herman Hauser's invested through Amadeus and sits mm. on our board. So we have very strong Arm connections. And I think as we develop our chip further and work out the IP and the business model around that, we will be you know leaning on our colleagues there to help us. Mm. Absolutely fantastic to hear your personal journey and your updates and to find out a little bit more about River Lane and we'll certainly be watching on. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Do you have a passion to inspire the next generation of scientists, coders, managers and creative geniuses? Or do you want to pay back to the community as part of your CSR objectives? At Form the Future, we have programmes to help you inspire the next generation of workers, build your future talent pipeline and invest in your people. Go to formthefuture.org.uk to find out more.